to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Can war ever be just? More specifically, can war ever be waged in a just manner? If so, what limits should be applied to the violence that is the essence of war? Is it moral to limit such violence if that delays victory and prolongs the suffering that war brings? But if not, can it be moral to wage war without limits? These are some of the ethical and legal paradoxes that faced military and political leaders during the Civil War. And we'll find out how some of them tried to solve these problems from Dr. D.H. Dilbeck, author of A More Civil War, How the Union Waged a Just War. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building here on the campus of East Carolina University in Office A320, full of books tonight, as I'll describe in a moment, Uh, but not speaking for the university, not speaking on behalf of the department or anybody else. My guest, likewise, will represent no one other than his own self. Well, this week, this past week here at East Carolina, it was homecoming weekend, and the Pirates came through on the football field, uh, winning a game for only the second time this season. They found a team they could beat in uh, BYU. The BYU gained 400 yards on the ground, uh, or 400 yards total during the game, which is 200 more than they do most weeks, but 200 less than ECU normally gives up, and that was good enough to uh, slow them down and allow the Pirates to win. So we're all just feeling uh, like like we're we're back in the hunt for the maybe not the national championship at two and six, but uh, but well, who knows? Probably nothing actually. It uh, has been an interesting week here on campus, also here in the history department. Uh, in history thirty two twenty five, the Civil War class uh, 
last week, uh, uh, if you were listening, you know, we spoke with uh, Joan Wall, one of the co-editor, co-authors of The American War, a new textbook that uh, I'm using this semester for the Civil War course. And so I urge the students to listen. If, if the author of your textbook is going to be on, on a podcast, you might learn something that would help you out in the class. And during uh, the show, uh, again, if you were listening last week, you remember I, I did warn them there were, that there would be a quiz the next day. My guess was that one or two would actually listen in the 24 hours after the show. And if even one of them did, they would then contact their fellow students. And that is, in fact, what happened. We have a room called the History Lab here at ECU. It's just a, a sort of study lounge. It has computers and printers and uh, basically a place for history students to hang out uh, between classes to do their homework, to write papers, uh, or to argue and talk. And a lot of the students in 3225 hang out there uh, between lunch and the start of class. And one of them was listening to the show last week and suddenly pulls out the earbuds and says, Get, we're having a quiz at two. Uh, he, he just said so. And so they they had 30 minutes in which those who had not yet done the reading, in spite of being urged to do the reading, uh, to 20, 30 minutes to pull it together. Not everybody had brought their book with them, so they were sharing books. They were working around good teamwork, and when we actually did have the quiz, they did better than the previous one. So uh, if you're listening this week, no quiz tomorrow. We'll be looking at the Battle of Gettysburg in detail, having just read The Killer Angels. And uh, uh, But be sure you read the Sherman Hood correspondence for next week. There's there's nothing like it in, in the annals of Civil War warfare, the letters between those two. Uh, and listeners, I'm sure you've, if you've read uh, Sherman's memoirs, if you, and any book about the Atlanta campaign, you've, you've read that correspondence. But that's not our topic tonight. Uh, before we get to that, a few other bits of news. Another local history event. I mentioned a few weeks ago the passing of uh, my friend and colleague uh, John Tilley. He was the father of public history here at East Carolina. And he also taught military history and naval history. And he was a uh, skilled ship modeler. His work appeared in some modeling magazines. Uh, uh, Mrs. Tilly asked me to help uh, take care of, of, of John's library in, in his, after his, uh, his death. Uh, and she wanted it, the books to go to students here at ECU. So... We already cleared out his office library, but today I went with a number of students, uh, half a dozen, over to uh, the home to to get uh, my friend's home library of books about mostly about uh, naval subjects there. And what an impressive collection uh, he he has! And it was something to see the graduate students and the senior undergrads being able to select from this and start to build their own libraries. Uh, I tried not to take anything for myself, uh, not too much. I don't have room anymore. But it, it, it was the passing of a torch to a, a new generation of, of future history enthusiasts and scholars and, and seeing them uh, have the benefit of, of the works that, that uh, John Tilly had collected. It, it was a good thing. 
Another good thing in Civil War history also came up this week. Uh, news from Fort Wayne, my old stomping ground, uh, home of the Lincoln Museum, the late lamented Lincoln Museum. That, is, as you know, had been run by the Lincoln National Corporation since uh, 1928 after the CEO under whom I uh, worked uh, retired, uh, Ian Rowland. The subsequent leaders gave up on the place and, and closed it in 2008. It was a, a travesty. Uh, well, Mr. Rowland uh, died this past summer in July, and his family this past week announced that they were giving a gift uh, of $1 million to the Allen County Public Library, which holds the research collection of the Lincoln Museum. And they are going to build a Lincoln Research Center where that collection will be made available to scholars. Uh, it's available now through the uh, uh, you, you can still get to it through the Allen County Public Library, but it's not featured as prominently as it should be, uh, staffed as it should be. It, it, it deserves its own setting, and uh, the Roland family has started a, an initial gift and, and with the anticipation of giving more later to get this project uh, to fruition. So the Lincoln Museum... It's not exactly reborn. It will be a Lincoln Research Center. Many of the artifacts have already been distributed to the Indiana History Museum in Indianapolis. But it's wonderful that this collection will get more of the prominence it deserves, and, and you will be able to use it if you're ever in northeastern Indiana. Go to Fort Wayne, go see the Lincoln Collection, and go see what will soon be the Roland Lincoln Ian Roland Lincoln Research Center. So that was that was just wonderful news to hear. And one more good thing to share. Lots of good things tonight. That's a that's 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 good. Uh, my friend Dan Weinberg and I were talking not long ago. He, of course, is proprietor of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago, and he wanted me to let you know that uh, Ron Chernow, author of a new book on U.S. Grant will be appearing on his show. It's not a podcast, but a video book signing uh, called A House Divided uh, on the Author's Voice website. You can get to it through the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop website. Uh, go to authorsvoice.net. Uh, you can find it there as well. And it'll be happening live November 1, 2017 at 2 p.m. Central Time. If you're watching live, you can talk to the author. You can get him to sign a copy of his book and mail it to you. And there are many other great author interviews at that that same website. So check out authorsvoice.net uh, at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. And while you're online, uh, after listening to this show and that, you can always find out what's happening next here at www.impedimentsofwar.org where Mark Gaffney keeps everything up to date. Next week, Carlton Young will be our guest. He found a collection of Civil War letters in the attic, the kind of thing we all dream about doing. It really happened, and he'll describe uh, what he learned uh, and wrote about in his book, Voices from the Attic, The Williamstown Boys in the Civil War. We'll follow that up November 8th, 2017, with Gary Cross, Gettysburg LBG, Licensed Battlefield Guide. On the 15th, Gordon Ray. Uh, you probably read one of his books already. If, if you have any interest in the Overland campaign, you may have read all of them. This is the 
completing volume of his series on that campaign. We'll take a break Thanksgiving week, come back with Andy Wosky, uh, author of Philadelphia and the Civil War, and uh, generally active in all kinds of Civil War activities, and finish the academic year, academic semester, uh, on December 6th with Sam Elliott, and his book about John C. Brown of Tennessee. So lots going on, lots of great things coming up in the uh, winter semester. Chuck Calhoun will be with us talking about U.S. Grant, Terry Alford talking about John Wilkes Booth, many other good ones. Uh, keep an eye on impedimentsofwar.org. Donate while you're there. And in fact, everybody, it's it's the fundraising season on, on the radio, so let's do it here. Uh, not for me, but for CAMP, C-A-M-P, Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation, to save the uh, Cattaraugus County Memorial and Historical Building. The locals were about to tear it down. Mark Dunkelman and others banded together, saved this historic building dedicated to the memory of Civil War soldiers and sailors. And they need some funding, some seed funding, till they can get the grant money to restore the place. We can help. If you donate to Civil War Talk Radio through the PayPal button at impedimentsofwar.org, uh, I'll pass on 100% of your contribution to camp, to the Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation. If you donate before end of 2017, everything you send will go straight to them. So please consider that. Well, I've talked way too long. Let's talk with our guest, D.H. Dilbeck. He is the author of A More Civil War, How the Union Waged a Just War, and uh, kind enough to join us tonight. Uh, Dr. Dilbeck, are you there? I am. Thank you very much for having me. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Um, I specifically said Dr. Dilbeck because uh, you have a doctoral degree, but I understand you are no longer Professor Dilbeck, that you've decided to to, uh, move into a different career path. Is that accurate? (laughs) <laughs> Believe it or not, it is. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm calling in uh, uh, from from New Haven, Connecticut, where uh, I'm a few weeks in uh, to my first semester at at the at the Yale Law School. Uh, uh, hopefully, more of a continuation of the path I've been on than a, a radical departure. But but yes, it it feels a bit like a radical one at this point. Well, I, I'm I'm really fascinated by that. I I went the other direction uh, when. Uh, practiced law for a few years and then went to graduate school. Um, couldn't get into Yale, so I went to Harvard. Uh, but the uh, um, the, uh, uh, the what's it like? What, what do you think after a few weeks of the Socratic method? <laughs> well, I, the, the part of me that's an intellectual omnivore, I guess, is. Uh, is uh, is enjoying uh, the the deep dive into uh, some subjects of study I've never had any occasion to to think about b- before. So that that's been uh, that's been uh, compelling. I think um, uh, uh, stretching a bit of the of the mind uh, that hasn't been stretched in a in a while. So uh, although I feel like I'm still Needing to come up for air at any moment. It's uh, it's 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 been a wonderful experience so far. It, it's probably premature to ask this, but I will anyway. I I thought law school was much more rigorous than the doctoral study for history, but that may have been because I did it first. And and I, I, how do you see the two? 
I, I, I think that's true. I, I, to my mind, the biggest reason why that may be true is that uh, the, the doctoral student, certainly at the ABD stage, but even before then, has a bit of a greater degree of control over uh, the, their day in and day out, the kind of work they're doing, mm-hmm. uh, the schedule on which they want to do it. That uh, relieves a little bit of the of the rigor or any kind of stress or pressure, I suppose, that comes along along uh, with things. Uh, I, I found that to be true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, law school, much more like, like boot camp in that regard. You, sure. They tell you what your classes are, you go to them, and uh, and they call on you, and, and you'd better be ready. Sure. Do sure. they still do that? Do they still call on people in the big classrooms as we did 20, 30 years ago, or is that is it a kinder, gentler world? <laughs> oh, no, no. Uh, uh, not, not kinder and gentler at all. I, I guess you'll be pleased to know, maybe. Uh, uh, but I, I had my fair share of shaming experiences, I suppose, in class cold calls at, at UVA and the graduate seminars. So any kind of uh, shame I might have had has been uh, thoroughly done away with, I suppose, at this point. Uh, so not quite as uh, not quite as terrifying as an experience as it might have been. I, otherwise, I suppose, having not gone through the PhD program, that, I, I find that really interesting because in the PhD program, the, there are the hazing elements, the shaming elements, and having been through law school and practice law, I completely blew those off. I was like, I, I'm sorry, I've been through this. You don't have to do that to me. Uh, I, 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 they had no terror for me. But but law school was terrifying, uh, and and you go, you're going about it the other direction, but you've got the same benefit uh, of experience. Yeah, I suppose the experience. Either way, whichever you do first is what is what matters, I guess. I think that must be it. Um, I'm sorry that we're already in our first break time. We haven't started the book. Um, we're going to come back and talk about a more civil war, how the union waged a just war. Our guest tonight is D.H. Dilbeck. He's the author. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with D.H. Dilbeck, author of How the Union Waged a Just War. Uh, do you go by initials? Is D.H. an okay thing to call you? Uh, yep, that's, that's perfect. Yep. Okay, and, and call me Jerry, please. Um, the uh, uh, This is a, a book that argues that the war waged by the Union was uh, was not a total war it was shaped by restraint as well as violence uh, cutting to the chase the fundamental uh, paradox is that the more uh, violent and intense the war the shorter and more humane the result uh, so how did, did, well let's talk about that how, how did union who addressed that problem? Did they, did they recognize that problem? Did they talk about it? How, how did that, how was that faced? Yes, I, th- I think so. I think there was a pretty, a pretty wide recognition. It's, it's a grim recognition, certainly, but, but, but one uh, that was sort of widely come to that um, the, the, the surest way to limit the total amount and death and destruction that's unleashed by this terrible thing, this war, is to end it as quickly as possible. And it may well be true that, again, however paradoxical it might seem, that the surest way to end the war as quickly as possible would be to resort to some quite destructive, terrifying uh, forms of violence. Um, uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a realization that I think you can find all the most important union political and military uh, leaders uh, that, that we know well are, are coming to, but it's, um, uh, I found to be a, a realization that uh, uh, is quite common among sort of ordinary union soldiers themselves, and, and there's something intuitive about this, I think. I mean, it, 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 when, you, when you put it in that way, I, th- I think it's not altogether hard to understand why Again, as grim as a calculation as it might be, it, it, it might nonetheless be a calculation that many people living through this this war uh, 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 could reach. So, I, I think the uh, to me the interesting question is, having come to that conclusion, how then did union policy makers, military leaders, go about the far more difficult sort of challenge of of translating that kind of big, broad conclusion about morality and warfare, translating it into some very concrete rules and guidelines for the actual waging of, of war. What can you do and not do in particular circumstances? That's, that's the, hard, the, the far harder challenge and a challenge that was ever present throughout the war. Well, you start by looking at one of the most challenging places to see that uh, in, in Missouri. You talk about in your first chapter where... Uh, the state is divided, neighbor against neighbor, uh, guerrilla warfare breaks out almost immediately. So if if anywhere that's going to be a challenge uh, to to limit war in some fashion, uh, you would think it, it would be in in Missouri. 
And yet you argue that there was restraint, that, that it was not an unlimited war by Union forces there. What, how, how do you, where do we find restraint in a place like that? Yeah, part of what I hoped to do in, in some of these early chapters focused, uh, and the first one in particular, on the situation in Missouri in the first 18 months or so of the war, is to try to flip on its head the conventional image that uh, certainly Civil War historians have had of the early war in the greater Missouri area, at least since some iconic books like from Michael Fellman and others, and, uh, well over 20 years old now, this this vision that uh, that kind of turned towards uh, a sort of almost indiscriminate hard war took uh, place first and sort of most disastrously in the greater Missouri area, precisely because of this rampant guerrilla problem. Uh, uh, the guerrilla problem just becomes an occasion, almost a justification for uh, indiscriminate violence, it seems at times, you know, blurring the lines completely between soldiers and civilians. Um, and, I mean, anyone who has looked at the record of the war in Missouri can find. Uh, ample evidence of this. Uh, I don't mean to deny that in many ways uh, the violence in a place like Missouri early in the war and the latter part of the war was in, in some sort of quantifiable way uh, more, 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 more terrible, I suppose, than, than in uh, other theaters of the war. And yet, and yet, and, and this is the, the big point I'm trying to make, that despite that, and in some ways precisely because of that, uh, this particular place, Missouri, um, gave rise to some of the earliest articulations, formulations among Union military leaders of how to wage a just war. I mean, this is sort of obvious enough. I think when you think about it, it's, it's only natural that in the place where the sort of just war questions are at their most extreme, as they were in sort of guerrilla-ravaged Missouri, that uh, Union leaders might have to come face-to-face first and, and in the most harrowing, harrowing kind of way with these, with these moral questions about, about uh, what a just war in, in action looks like. So what I found is that um, the guerrilla situation in Missouri early in the war gives rise to, to some of the earliest and most important kind of thorough articulations, definitions of sort of here's how we're going to wage a just war and in particular how we're going to do it against guerrillas, who's a soldier, who's a civilian, how are we going to treat sort of different categories of soldiers in certain ways, how are we going to treat soldiers differently from civilians, what makes a, 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 a sort of a, a legitimate Confederate soldier who acts in sort of guerrilla-like ways, uh, still a a soldier deserving the protections normally afforded to soldiers as opposed to just a kind of mere lawless marauder, as they're often referred to. I mean, these kind of problems pose the first order, to my mind, the first order just war questions about how you're going to treat your enemy and the civilians within an enemy population in a war. And the unions having to come face-to-face with that in Missouri really earlier than anywhere else, I think. So they they do treat uh, civilians and soldiers differently, obviously, but as you say, it's not just a, uh, a, a clear bipolar split between civilians and soldiers. You've got different types. Uh, Francis Lieber, who we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later in more detail, uh, you mentioned he published a pamphlet that defined 10 different types 
of non-regular enemy troops. What? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, everybody's heard of guerrillas. Maybe there's partisan rangers. Uh, Ten more, eight more. What did he come up with? Yeah, and and it, it does seem uh, almost pedantic at, at best when you sort of get into to the particular categories that that he envisioned, and and in some ways I would say. Um, the particulars, the particular categories themselves, were, in an end, almost of minor importance, even within this particular uh, pamphlet that uh, that Lieber wrote. So he's got uh, the partisan, the free corps, the spy, the rebel, the conspirator, the robber, and he tries in some very nuanced ways to say, well, and there are certain kinds of situations where you might encounter these different categories of individuals, and you might, it would be best to treat them in certain different ways in these certain uh, uh, circumstances. I think. I think the larger point that's being conveyed with that sort of meticulousness is just that in a war, uh, uh, an army is going to confront different categories of individuals, soldiers and civilians, different types of civilians, different types of soldiers, and and uh, different kinds of treatment and different kinds of circumstances should be afforded to these different categories of, of people. I, I think the other sort of big point maybe worth making now about this pamphlet you know, that you mentioned mm-hmm. that, that Francis Lieber wrote related to guerrillas is that um, within the pam- pamphlet, he quite intentionally afforded a, a fair bit of leeway to officers in the field. I mean, he, he was he was keenly aware of the fact that um, uh, you, you've got to set some broad parameters for how to wage a war justly, and in some certain circumstances, you've got to be very concrete about what can never be done. But um, war is unpredictable, and when soldiers and their officers in the field, they're going to face a, a wide array of problems and circumstances that might faintly be imagined by you know, the treatise writer coming up with these rules. And so you've got to have a a certain degree of trust in uh, in your officers that they're going to having kind of internalized in general terms this, this kind of moral vision of right conduct in war that they'll behave appropriately and and so he was perfectly fine I think with allowing a certain degree of of discretion uh, for, for for union officers as they uh, found themselves in the field and confronting these these kinds of just war questions. Now, you also talk about how union policy works towards civilians, which I thought was quite interesting, uh, because civilians are, are, just as guerrillas are soldiers who blend in with the civilian population, the civilian population has to be willing to accept them. And so you get the question of, uh, at what point can you punish the civilian population for guerrilla activities? Uh, What would... Was that widely done? Did Union soldiers routinely say, uh, we'll, we'll destroy this village because the soldier was ambushed near here? Or, uh, uh, or, or how, how common was that? Do you- yes, I mean, there, there's no question about it um, that with varying degrees of severity, there's a great deal of, of punishing of local civilian populations for guerrilla attacks that happen nearby. And as you said, the assumption behind this kind of punishment is that these guerrillas emerge from within these local civilian populations, they commit their acts of violence, and then they retreat 
back into the bosom of these civilian populations, uh, 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 completely shrouded in secrecy. I mean, their identities aren't aren't known, and uh, and and the, so there's a there's a kind of a, a keen sense of offended justice here that uh, these sort of local civilian populations who nurture and harbor these guerrillas are, are not going to sort of pay at all for the these acts, and and yet at the same time, union officers have to sort of wrestle with this challenge of how. Can you? I mean, to, in what ways can you hold a local civilian population responsible in the hopes of preventing future guerrilla activity? I mean, that, that's the real goal in mind here. And yet, at the same time, how can you balance that with a kind of recognition that, well, you've, you've got to afford some opportunity, perhaps, for these local populations to sort of give up to union officers, the responsible guerrillas, or to, to make some kind of amends? And um, this, this this sort of balance works itself out in a, in a variety of ways throughout the war. There are times when union officers re- resort to just um, quite extreme forms of sort of punishment against local civilian populations. Uh, other times where they try to coerce, giving up certain types of guerrillas. Other times in which they issue some big terrifying threats and to no avail, but then don't altogether follow through with them. Um, uh, I think the important thing to take away from all of this is that more than sort of exacting some kind of punishment against these civilian populations, I think more often than not, the, the desire is to try to prevent future kind of guerrilla activity. And if that's the goal, then you can see perhaps why certain restraint might be the best way to approach things, a kind of heavy threat but not follow through, maybe follow through to some extent. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a complicated business, certainly, and, and, and one, uh, for that reason, that's hard to sort of generalize about, uh, I suppose. Well, another uh, example you look at is the Union occupation of New Orleans, where Benjamin Butler was in charge, uh, Beast Butler, as Southerners, white Southerners came to call him, or Spoons Butler for taking private property, uh, but you point out one of his first acts when he became the the military uh, administrator for New Orleans was to hang a civilian who had uh, disrespected the United States flag, had, had torn it down, and that this act, while it made him very unpopular, did leave no question that he, he was quite serious about enforcing order in the town. Absolutely, and uh, the the sort of union occupiers are in a similar situation, I suppose, in some respects, with the the union troops that find themselves in a sort of guerrilla-infested area. But uh, when someone like Butler arrives in occupied New Orleans, or someone like uh, Sherman arrives in occupied Memphis, they've, they've got two big objectives. Uh, set before them that are not easily reconciled I, I, in a lot of ways, I think. I mean, on the one hand, there is the desire to restore, as they would see it, some kind of order and lawfulness uh, within these cities. And, um, uh, and you can imagine, for obvious reasons, why that might require quite stern measures, as stern as uh, the hanging of someone, as, as you mentioned. And, but yet, at the other side, uh, there is the desire to try to bring this 
what they would have perceived as a, as a, as a wayward civilian population back into the Union fold. I mean, this is a, a conquered people now, a conquered city now. How, how can you best, uh, as the war continues to rage, sort of begin this process of reunification? And, um, and that might require a, a radically different sort of way of, of, of treating this sort of occupied civilian population. And, and, and the just war problems and policies, I think, really arrive out of the nexus of those two goals, the sort of restoration of, of, of order, sort of, uh, union control on the one hand, and, and the desire to, uh, to, to, to try to reintegrate uh, uh, this... this um, seceded civilian population back within the, the Union fold. Right. You can't... Uh, uh, there, scorched earth is not going to be a, a victory that anybody wants. Lincoln's not trying to destroy the South, trying to bring it back in. So there is a limit at which, as you say, violence will be useful. Uh, Butler does other things in New Orleans, of course. Listeners probably know about the, the woman order where he said... Southern women disrespecting Union officers would be treated as uh, women of the streets plying their trade. I got some mileage out of that in class the other day. Uh, using your analysis, you're, you're, you're quoting Butler on this, that he was not suggesting uh, that Union officers should solicit these women, but rather that they could now ignore them because they weren't ladies. They, weren't, uh, they, they, were, they no longer had any dignity. And their insults carried no sting. They were just just common uh, streetwalkers, and they could safely be ignored. Uh, very clever by Butler. We're going to take another short break uh, and, and come back in just a minute and talk more with our guest tonight, D.H. Dilbeck. He's the author of A More Civil War, How the Union Waged a Just War. Uh, one of the ways they did that was with uh, General Orders Number 100, and we're going to come special orders number 100, I should say. We'll come back and talk about that in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P R O. K O P 
O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with D.H. Delbeck, author of A More Civil War, How the Union Waged a Just War. We've been talking about some of the problems of dealing with guerrillas, dealing with occupied cities and civilians. And uh, as is promised, uh, I want to ask about the, the central document in Union Just War Doctrine, uh, it was, uh, of course, General Orders 100, not Special Orders. I don't know why I wrote that in my notes here. I was right the first time, usually am. Uh, General Orders 100, written by Francis Lieber, who we mentioned before. Who was Francis Lieber, and, and what was General Orders 100? Well, Francis Lieber um, was a Berlin-born uh, American immigrant. He's born in Berlin, um, almost certainly in 1798. He comes of age uh, in, in the Greater Prussian area, comes of age in the in the thick of the Napoleonic Wars. He serves in them for a time. He's injured in them. He receives a PhD in mathematics at the University of Jena. A little too repressive in 19th century uh, Prussia. Uh, for a kind of liberal-minded uh, intellectual like Lieber, he spent some time in in the UK and eventually immigrates uh, to Boston. Uh, to Boston, and he uh, runs a gymnasium there for a time. is associated with uh, the Encyclopedia Americana, this I- I- iconic encyclopedia set that makes its way all across the nation. He pines for a teaching post at Harvard, which he never receives, and so he. So he moves to South Carolina, and he, and he teaches throughout the late 1830s, 1840s, into the 1850s in at South Carolina College, a range of subjects, history, political economy, and law, and the like. Uh, raises a family there mostly, and, and in the late 1850s moves to New York City. By this point, um, he, has, he has established himself uh, as, an, as, as an intellectual authority, I would say, certainly in the United States on international law, the laws of war in particular. Uh, he's one of these figures that by the time the war breaks out, uh, he's, he's not only intensely loyal to the Union, uh, but he's, from a kind of intellectual standpoint, as well prepared, really, as, as anyone uh, to... to um, to, to think about from a from both a moral standpoint and a legal standpoint these these questions of, of just warfare and he and he brings that expertise uh, to bear uh, in the midst of the war in, uh, itself uh, he's ambitious he wants to play his part as best he can in the Union war effort he's too old uh, to enlist he, uh, he he thinks he knows he's never going to receive any other kind of military commission uh, but 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 he's a he's a master networker he's, his correspondence work and correspondence are wonderful. He's, he's he's constantly corresponding with all with the who's who of the Union High Command, and he, and eventually he he comes to convince Henry Halleck, especially that something like this thing that we come to know now as General Orders 100 is necessary. At it, at its simplest, uh, General Orders Number 100, eventually known as the Lieber Code, is a is a kind of distillation of the of the laws of war. It's 157 articles. Most of them short, pithy, a sentence or two, that try in the most succinct 
uh, possible terms to set forth what is required, uh, uh, sort of what international law, the laws of war re- requires of um, uh, uh, soldiers in a war, what, what is a sort of just conduct in the most important circumstances, how to treat guerrillas, civilians, how to treat captured prisoners of war, and, and those kinds of things. So it, it's really the iconic, the most important, uh, most exhaustive statement to emerge on either side from the war of, 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 of what a just war in action uh, should be. Was there anything like that before the war? I mean, today, we think of the Geneva Convention, that's all in the future. Uh, was there anything to guide soldiers in how to behave? No, not, I mean, there's certainly lengthy treatises on international law, the laws of war, morality and warfare, but they're they're written for sort of intellectuals well-versed in the field. Uh, they're lengthy, they're dense often. There's nothing of the kind of pocket handbook uh, genre, distillation of, of the field. Uh, if, if Lieber's code has any claim to kind of innovation in in the history of international law, it's it's precisely on that point on its on its form. Um, we're gonna try to give and the document tries to give to soldiers, to officers, uh uh, uh, laymen, uh, not experts in the field, uh, a, a kind of best summary of of what the, this field of uh, the laws of war has to say about how they ought to ought to behave, and and it becomes a real model for later and more well known kind of statements of of sort of right conduct in war that uh, that, that we're familiar with uh, the Geneva Conventions and and, and and others like it in the 19th and 20th centuries. It, so at at the extreme, is there anything that Lieber says you just can't do? Just no circumstance ever justifies. Yes, uh, th- there are um, uh, a few things uh, that, that that Lieber is is perfectly fine to say. Look, there's there's never a sort of situation in which this could be could be justified. Assassination is one. Uh, uh, use of poisons in certain circumstances, those kinds of things. Sort of cruel treatment of uh, captured prisoners for no other reason than just to exact a certain vengeance. Um, in, in general terms, he says, you should never do anything that undermines the ultimate goal of the war, which is the restoration of peace. Um, so there are a, a, a handful of things that he's willing to say, under no circumstances would this would this be uh, justified. Um, the, the, the rest of his of the, of the sort of prohibitions and guidances with, within the code itself uh, 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 sort of are issued under the broad umbrella of, of this, uh, uh, really two, I think, big principles, which are really the guiding principles of, of, of the sort of vision of just warfare and the code itself. One, we've talked about this idea that the sort of most humane thing is to end the war as quickly as possible, even if that means using sort of harsh tactics. And... Um, and uh, also related to that, as Lieber says at one point in the in the code, uh, just to quote him, to save the country is paramount to all other concerns. And we can imagine how potentially, if you took that to be true, that might open the floodgates to all manner of sort of indiscriminate warfare. And so the code is, on the one hand, sort of setting forth this kind of broad guidance that, look, need to end the war quickly, save the country at all costs. Do what it takes to do to to achieve that goal, uh, and yet always the code is sort of 
trying to draw some limits around those sort of broad principles. And yet, despite all of the fact that these things are true, there are certain things nonetheless that sort of shouldn't be done or in certain circumstances you shouldn't do these these kinds of things. It's, it's a tension uh, that, that, that's at the heart of, of the code and at the so the heart of the vision of just warfare that it that it embodies. Well, it, it's a complex question. It's made more complex by the fact that this is a civil war. Uh, yeah. That treating from the very start to treat any Confederate soldier as a soldier rather than a rebel, a, a person committing treason against the government, is is problematic right from the start. Yes, absolutely, and uh, as I'm sure uh, your listeners are, will no doubt be aware of, this is a this is a question that's uh, certainly on Lincoln's mind early in the war. You know, keen for political diplomatic reasons to not sort of act in such a way that would acknowledge the Confederacy as a legitimate nation. This is not a civil war, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but if you really believed that to be true, then it would stand to reason that you sort of wouldn't extend to Confederate soldiers some of the normal rights and protections usually afforded to soldiers in war, certainly capture soldiers in war. Are you really going to treat uh, the thousands upon thousands of sort of Confederate soldiers in arms not as soldiers of a legitimate nation, but as mere lawbreakers, <laughs> treasonous lawbreakers that deserve uh, some kind of summary execution or something like it. I mean, there's sort of practical concerns there, but kind of moral concerns as well. And Lieber kind of has a, in the end, he sort of dismisses this question in a sense. I mean, he, he kind of says, look, there's no problem with, on the one hand, continuing to say the Confederacy is not a legitimate nation. Uh, um, We and you, great European powers, don't need to acknowledge it as such. And yet, at the same time, uh, we're going to sort of extend to Confederate soldiers the the kinds of rights and privileges, protections that enemy soldiers should normally be extended in in wars between legitimate nations. He he doesn't sort of uh, long linger on this problem as a particularly perplexing one. Well, the uh, I mean, there's a tradition. Uh, I don't know if it's in Vitale or elsewhere, but of the the, the Bellum Romanum, uh, the the war the Romans would fight against non-civilized uh, people, in which there is no law at all, and and the Bellum yeah. Romanum applied both to to uh, pagan tribes and to rebels, and so yeah. there there was a legal tradition under which you could execute every Confederate you caught, but it would hardly lead to peaceful restoration after the war so that's not going to happen um i'm curious and i'm not trying to ask this in a gotcha way but i'm curious about the the omission of uh michael waltzer's book uh just and unjust wars yeah that i that was a really formative book for me many years ago uh, in thinking about the issues some of the issues you address here uh you don't particularly engage with it or, or reference it was it just not not on the radar or yeah no uh, uh, like you um I, I read and and this to some extent admired that book certainly as a work of uh, a kind of moral philosophy ethical uh, uh reasoning uh, I, and and that book uh uh, of course, deals deals in part with the Civil War and 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 uh, and, and Sherman in parts in, in particular among among others. I, I think um, what I well part of what I I found sort of 
unhelpful and unconvincing in that book in a way that is sort of endemic of a, of a lot of books, even by historians, I think, on, on some of these questions in the past is, um, well, well, twofold, I suppose. One, uh, uh, <laughs> how to put this in the fairest terms, uh, an unwillingness to some degree to take the sort of moral thinking of actors in the past on their own terms. Uh, uh, let's try to understand as best as possible how Sherman or Lieber or whoever else might have conceived of a just war and tried to act upon that. And that might be more properly how a historian might approach these questions than say a philosopher, an ethicist, theologian or something like it. But maybe even more sort of technical and more importantly than that, it seems to me important to recognize that certainly in the minds of I would say many 19th century Americans living through the Civil War, certainly someone like Lieber, that uh, to him, violence, destructiveness, on the one hand in war, and on the other hand, restraint in war, these aren't sort of polar opposites that were constantly torn, uh, uh, sort of torn between one or the other as we're trying to think through how to wage a, a just war. Lieber says, in contrast, they both have their place in in a just war, sort of violence, destructiveness, even potentially immense kinds of violence and destructiveness on the one hand, restraint on the other. It's not as if uh, the one who wages a just war is only the one who sort of cues uh, closely to the restraint end of the, end of the spectrum. Uh, Lieber sort of operating from a whole different kind of conceptual framework than I, than I think uh, 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 certain modern moral philosophers, ethicists like uh, Walter and others uh, are sort of operating from, and and so in, in that sense, why I, I think there's maybe a, a kind of limited utility in in, um, in in that sort of project, the intellectual project they're engaged with. Nonetheless, I, I think they're helpful for prodding a, a book like Walter's is helpful for for prodding historians to not dismiss too quickly these moral questions. Do we really believe the Civil War was a just war and waged in a just manner? And and what implications are there for how we how we answer that question? Not simply as historians, but sort of as modern Americans or, or people who have any kind of passing interest in, in important moral questions about warfare. Well, that that's a good point that these questions are are hardly just historical curiosities. Uh, on the one hand, uh, to historicize them, to look at them in in the light of their times is what historians do, and, and we have to be cognizant of what they were thinking and what their moral and, and experiential context were, whereas, uh, but at the same time, these are not, you know, just, just uh, not just looking under glass at an insect uh, on a paper. This is a, a, a real living problem, the question how you deal with civilians in wartime. And so, uh, so there's interaction back and forth between the past and present here. And this book certainly makes a contribution to that. Uh, there is so much more here. Uh, your discussion of the the Union and Confederate prisoners at Charleston being used as human shields by both sides uh, in, a, in a contest over who was right. Uh, the question of retaliation for Fort Pillow and other massacres. Lots to be discussed in this book. Unfortunately, tonight we're out of time. But, uh, listeners, you can learn about these things from the book, D.H. Dilbeck's A More Civil War, How the Union Waged a Just War. 
uh, it, it's definitely uh, a, a thought-provoking piece. And uh, D.H., thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thank you very much again for having me, Jerry. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.